it's always changing and growing and all of that kind of stuff. But I do think when you've lived on the streets and you've been through those things, those are those are the power those are the things that make my career so strong today right like my experience on the streets like i use the same networking techniques today that i did when i was trying to get food or other things back then right like yeah. i i use the same type of techniques and welcome to innovation and leadership where i interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got my good friend Savannah Sanders. Savannah, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. Listen, we have appreciated your support at Child Rescue so much over these last nine years. I think there's so many questions that I think we should cover, but I think one of the ones that I want to start with is maybe not one that you usually get asked, but it's it's relevant to me because I'm in the middle of writing. What were some of the things that helped you get your first book written? Okay. Oh, ADHD. <laughs> Hyper-focusing. I wish I was joking, but I'm actually not. So, yeah. So I, I published my my first book in 2015. I say first book because I plan on more, but none are actually in the process of being published right now. And I had always, always wanted to write a book. And I was really focused on prevention at the time in my career and in my, in the culture of my family. And I mean, everything was like talking about a abuse prevention and trafficking prevention and, and, and different things like that. And I was speaking at an event one day and I was talking, I was using personal stories and personal narratives to drive home the education that I was trying to present to the people that I was talking to, which is really like, I'm such a strong believer in narratives and experiences as education and being able to tie those experiences and narratives to science and philosophies and, and that kind of thing. I feel like that's probably my strongest point in, in the way that I've led my trainings and seminars and all of that over the decade and a half that I've been doing this. And so I was speaking at a conference and I was sharing my experiences and using personal stories to drive home the prevention. And there was a publisher in the audience actually. And one of my friends introduced me to her and I told her, you know, I've been wanting to write this book. I have the title and the content and everything. I haven't written it, but I like have it planned out in my head. And I want to use my story to be able to help parents really understand like abuse prevention and what happened in my life that was done wrong and what I've changed and how I've grown and healed and how I've done that differently with my own kids was really important to me to kind of show people like, I truly believe that the best way for abuse prevention is not the best way, but one of the most profound ways is that one person healing their crap can then impact the rest of their family system. 
And so I told her that and I was like, but I want to show people like very specific situations where I, where I've had the same exact situations as my kids and how it was handled with me as a kid and how I handled it differently with my kids and how that has shown very specific ways to prevent abuse happening from within family systems. And she was like, okay, I love it. Let's sit down. And I got a contract and I started working on it. I don't know if I should tell people this, but I wrote the first half of the book in the first three months of the contract. It was a one-year contract. I wrote the first half in the first three months. I didn't touch it again for nine months <laughs> and then wrote the second half of the book in the last three months. I actually think the second half of the book is because I was on such a tight deadline. It's actually the most, it's all good. I love my book, but the second half is my favorite part. <laughs> and, and what's the name? Tell everybody the title in case they want to check it out. It's called Sex Trafficking Prevention, A Trauma-Informed Approach for Parents and Professionals. Yeah. You know, I think about our years of conversations and, you know, in this show, we really focus on people who are above average achievers, who have accomplished something uncommon. And I think about both the world of, you know, the nonprofits directly going after the trafficking, maybe on the intervention side or the folks in aftercare or prevention, these different, these different realms, the, the universities, the government agencies. I'm interested, you've seen so much. Who do you feel like, who do you look up to? Who do you feel like is doing a good job out there? As far as anti-trafficking work? Yeah. Well, for me, with some, like, as you know, I have lived experience with exploitation. And I mean, I really, I really look up to so many people with lived experience that are doing this work. I do feel like in a lot of cases that there's an aspect of disadvantage for survivor leaders and people with lived experience to be in the leadership roles that they deserve to be in. Because I feel like a lot of other people in the anti-trafficking movement, kid glove survivors, or try to protect them in a way that actually causes us to not be able to move into leadership positions that we really deserve because of perceptions of lack of education or degrees and, and that kind of thing. But I'm really, you know, when we're, and there's a lot, so it's not just within the anti-trafficking movement. We have a lot of disadvantages of being in leadership roles for a lot of reasons, because we're actively breaking generational cycles of poverty and abuse and healing our own trauma and putting our blood, sweat, and tears into the, to the movement that really was, it's one the anti-trafficking movement is is interesting sometimes because it's it's one of the movements that really there were a lot of survivors there were a few survivors that were spearheading things but it really took off because of other people finding it as such a horrific crime against humanity other organizations other, you know that kind of thing and they really led the charge and then started to invite survivors in, whereas a lot of other movements that have made a lot of change over, over the years have really been led by 
people impacted by those issues first and foremost. It was very grassroots by people impacted and they they stood up and they led charges. And with the anti-trafficking movement, I feel like we were really invited in kind of later in the game and it wasn't necessarily charged by us. And it was more about saving us instead of us, you know, saving the world kind of thing. There was kind of that aspect of it. And so I really look up to a lot of a lot of people with lived experience who are not necessarily in high positions as as leading the charge in, in high positions, but these phenomenal men and women who I see that are on the ground in like the darkest of places and like in the on the streets and making connections and doing the best that they possibly can with like the little and least amount of support and resources and like putting together like putting together food weekends and cooking the food themselves and doing outreach and strip clubs and on the streets and and not to take anybody away, but just to literally love on people with their own life experiences and and see the actual needs. Those are the those are the people that I look up to the most, and those are those are the people that can take you know fifty thousand dollars and do more impactful work than some of these grants that are three, four, five million dollars. I see more influential healing-based approaches happening on the ground with the littlest amount of money. And that, I think that's the that's the people that I look up to yeah. the most. You know, Stephanie and I just sat through, we got invited to event this year, which was digital, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting. And do you know Tina Front from Courtney's house in DC? Yes. Tina is, Tina is my lovely. I love her so much. I'm such a fan. We Stephanie and I met her the year before we met you, actually. Mm-hmm. We went out to D.C. and she gave us a tour of her place. And, you know, she's such a fireball, right? Um, yeah. And uh, she really changed my opinion on things. Like, she said, like, you know, when you think about the law enforcement assistance side of this, you know, people need to change their minds because you guys are, like... You want to threaten these traffickers and pimps with jail. They're not afraid of jail. Their cousin's in jail. Their dad's in jail. They've, they've probably been to jail. You need to, like, go all Al Capone and, like, go after their money. Like, you know, Al Capone on the taxes, right? She's like, they're really yeah. worried about losing their money. They know if they go to jail, they'll come back out and, like, the wad of cash they've got in the coffee can is still going to be there. Like, you, you guys, you got you to, like, think like them if you're, if you're going to deter them. And anyways, there's just little things like that. And, you know, like back then I didn't know about campaigns, like what she does with the printing the phone number on like uh, makeup compacts and and combs and stuff that she knew traffickers weren't going to take away from them. That she just, you know, it's like a CIA brush pass on the streets. out yeah. there, Slaps it in their hand as she walks by, says, call me if you need something, you know, call, call if you need help. Yeah. Kind of stuff. I was like, this is awesome. How come, how come we haven't heard of this before? Anyways, I just... It was so insightful. I'm so glad to see because to see her winning this award 10 years later, she's still going strong. Anyways, it was fun to see. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, that's the kind of stuff, right? Like we, because we've been there and we've been on the streets and we've been in, involved in the 
culture and all of that. And I don't pretend to know half the stuff that I did back then anymore because I've been out so long and there's, it's always changing and growing and all of that kind of stuff. But I do think when you've lived on the streets and you've been through those things, those are, those are the power. Those are the things that make my career so strong today, right? Like my experience on the streets, like I use the same networking techniques today that I did when I was trying to get food or other things back then, right? Like I, I use the same type of techniques. And one thing that I also have realized Two, my like my leadership skills that I use today are definitely definite were definitely formed by my experiences in on the streets and my abuse prior and all of that kind of thing. And obviously I don't want other people to go through the horrific things that I've gone through and all of that kind of thing, but it really is what makes me who I am. And I feel very blessed to be able to have done so much healing and work that I I'm in this place where I can not just take ownership of the things that I, that I receive the gifts that I received from that time in my life, but also just the innate things that I was born with that were enhanced because of the trauma that I experienced that make me who I am today in like the world of like in a world of leadership and career and in the family space of, of my life, all of those things are very integrated into who I am today. You know, I I feel like I have a sense of what you're saying, just, you know, with, with my mother-in-law being a trafficking survivor and the fourth generation in their family, right? There's so many things that my wife grew up with of, you know, not just being the daughter of a survivor, but the granddaughter of another survivor and the great granddaughter of another survivor. And, you know, all those women are close in age. You know, her great grandma is a similar age difference to what my grandma is to me, right? There's just a whole Mm -hmm. extra generation in there, you know, and there's no dads around. So they were all living together back and forth across California stuff. And I can say it's for sure changed our organization, just the insight of how Stephanie grew up and you know, unfortunately, some of the violence that happened even after she was born and, and was a little girl and some of the men that were around and stuff that happened, right? You know, uh, I think another another uh, woman that I really look up to in the space, did you ever meet Amanda Benella? She came out and so. She came out and spoke at our concert the summer before you came and taught all of our youth program. Oh, we did other videos no, with I her. I don't know if you met her. I don't think I did. So she... She had been, unfortunately, abused in foster care in Utah, ended up going up to Canada, ended up on the streets. This Lebanese guy said that he owned her and then sold her to this black guy who sold her to the Hells Angels. And she just got some crazy stories and eventually eventually was able to escape. Well, she had this horrific event happen and the Hells Angels actually let her out. And mm. But, you know, she's like 23. She's like, do you know what? She's like... I, I, this has been happening to me since I'm 14. Like, I don't understand how you squares live. Like I've never shot for my own groceries. My whole life happens at night. I've never had a bank account. I've never like, there's all these things. It's like, oh great. I'm free. But like, you know, like it's, there's so many unknowns, right? Well, I've just got so much respect for her because she didn't just recover. She went on to help. And I think that's one of the reasons I've always had so much respect for you is like, 
it's not just what a great job you've done with your life and your family, but how many others you've helped. But Amanda yes. started an ice cream shop near the track in Vancouver, British Columbia. And we'd go give free ice cream to girls on the track and talk to them and talk yeah. and talk them out of the life. Say like, I know where you used to be. I used to be there too. And like literally talk to my life and say like, I know you think you can't get away from, I know you think you can't get away from him, but you can and we can help and I can engineer this. And she's like, she's like, again, you know, my like love with spies and special ops. She's like an undercover operative with ice cream, right? Yeah. She did great things, like super great things because of it. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's really what it's, I think all of us have our different ways of getting, getting, going back into the the lion's den i guess in yeah. somewhere when, when did you get your degree i know it's been a bit i i was just thinking about this a couple days ago i graduated with my bsw in 2015 so it's been six years mm-hmm. or so at, yeah at, did that feel like did that feel like an extra triumph for you maybe compared to other people it did it didn't Honestly, it was, so I think during the time, yes, I mean, my, just getting my GD felt like a huge triumph because I had been doing it, trying to do it for so long and there was so much fear around it that there was no way that like, I didn't even go to high school and I was going to have to study for all this stuff. And, but then taking that first step and getting it done and, and, passing it without having to study was like a really big thing. And then I think the thing that was more, so my degree is awesome and I love it, but I I had a full ride scholarship for my degree and it was a specific scholarship, the Nina Mason Pulliam scholarship that was for women 25 and older with children or were college age with a disability or had been in foster care. And so I think there were like nine, like 400 or something applications for that scholarship. And I was just in my first semester of college and I applied for it and I got a full ride scholarship. That was really the, that was the thing, like for me to be a dropout at eight in eighth grade and had gone to like 13 different schools and was homeless and addicted to drugs and trafficked and all the things that I went through having a full ride scholarship was definite, like at that age with my kids and not doing it the, the, you know, traditional way of like graduating with a 4.0 and valid Victoria, like that thing I had in my head, like that's what people, I think that was the thing that was the most impactful for me. It definitely kept me motivated while I was, you know, raising four kids and working two jobs and trying to build a marriage and all of that kind of stuff yeah. while I was going to school was definitely That's so interesting. It kept me motivated. You know, that's yeah. interesting. Just, you know, Stephanie is the first one in her family line to have gone to college, you know? Yeah. And uh and like she talks about being a kid and like where she grew up, she's like, the only people I knew who had been to college were my school teachers. And like it just yeah. didn't seem real. Like going to college going to university was just not it was just not on the agenda. Like it just wasn't talked about. It wasn't thought about. Nobody, nobody went, you know what I mean? Yeah. And what's funny is <laughs> she, she dropped out 
right before she has like a handful of credits left so she never got her degree but you know her brother ended up becoming a dentist and other family members went on uh, <laughs> to yeah. to take the take the torch well, there the but i think it's the experience not the paper honestly <laughs> because i mean for some people it is but for me i you know and i had a i had like a track right like i was I was going to get my bachelor's, I was going to get my master's, then I was going straight for the PhD, and I was going to do all the things. But it, just like Steph, I had really never met anybody that had had a degree until I went and started my GD and started like meeting with people and talking to them about things. And I think that was what was so impactful about the scholarship was everybody I was talking to, like it seemed so attainable for so many people. And prior to that, I was like, oh, that's just a thing that like will never happen in my life kind of kind of thing. However, now that I had the time to reflect and like look back on that time in my life and all of that, I had this like future trajectory that I was dead set on because of all the people that I was meeting. And I felt like in order to be successful at that time, I had to have that piece of paper. Now I recognize that the degree is incredibly impactful and the experience was incredibly motivating, but I was setting my kids up to this place where the only way that they would succeed in life was if they had a degree. And because I was so dead set on it during that time and I was in the midst of my healing and I was doing the trauma thing and all of that stuff. And so I really kind of reined back a little bit on that too, because I'm like, oh, like, hey, bro, you can be successful like in so many ways in your life that are are true to who you are and your passions and your experiences and your heart and your soul and all of those kinds of things. And this can enhance it for you in certain ways, but it also in some areas can also hold you back too. So like we need to like look at you as a whole person and what you want. And one of my kids did go on to do the thing, right? They graduated high school with the, with the honors and they got the full ride scholarship. And that was like my goal. Once I started school was for my kids to have that dream thing that I thought I missed out on. And halfway through her college experience, she was devastated and just struggling so much. And I was, and she was like, I can't quit because I have a full ride scholarship. And then I was like, actually, you can, you can take a step back. Like you can do life differently. Like you, I did all this work so that you guys could do life a bit differently. And she wound up quitting and is now took like three years off, lost the scholarship, all that. And is so excited to be starting community college now with the passion that she like has found in the three year break. And I think that's just as successful as, the way that I did it or that he could have, you know, you know what I mean? Like, cause it's well, to her heart. I kind of don't know what you mean because I'm a dropout. <laughs> I never <laughs> went back. So, but, but I appreciate the, like, I think about, you know, you and I've had so many conversations over the years yeah. and I think about all the folks that I've had conversations like the kinds you and I have had. And I have never found the you shoulds very helpful. Yeah. So, if it was like, you should finish because you got the scholarship, I don't think that's a good enough reason. Like, I think you yeah. probably should finish. There's so many great things. Like, the, like yeah. a college degree is great. I, 
obviously I, I think that it, it's not mandatory, <laughs> but, yeah. but this idea of like, this idea of figuring out what you want so bad, you'll work till two in the morning to get it. You know what I mean? Like that's more helpful than like having a whole bunch of people pat you on the back because they like what you did instead of you like what you did in my exactly opinion. Yeah. And I, that's been like a big thing for me because I've done the things right. Like I got the degree. I did the two or three jobs and like was traveling all over the country. I've written a book. I've been this pristine speaker all over the place and I've done all sorts of things. And then this last year, life with COVID and having a baby and getting divorced, all the things that I thought I was working towards were the things that I was actually not experiencing, right? Like, and it really made me sit down. This, like this past two years has really made me sit down and realize like, what are the things that are most important to me? Because I thought I needed to check off all these shoulds and all these boxes in order to get to that, not realizing that what I really wanted was right in front of me the whole freaking time anyways, which was just time with my family and my kids and myself and doing my passion work and not doing work that was based on what should be done or needed to be done kind of thing. And being able to really slow down enough to be able to even get to know what I, what my passions were. I know that I'm passionate about trafficking and trauma and all of that kind of stuff, but those are such huge, broad topics. And I was like, what is really my role in this space? And then what are the things that bring me the most joy when I'm doing this? And what are the things that I'm doing because they just need to be get, need to be done? And how much more successful am I when I'm, when I'm, chasing my joy versus chasing these shoulds, right? Yeah. No, and then great. trying trying to do that with my kids. And now I'm fostering again, which is amazing and I love it. And I'm just like home with all these, I have like a house full of teenagers and they're like eating pizza and like laughing and screaming at each other and doing all of that. And I have a snuggly baby and I, I don't think I've been this content in a really, really, really long time. So <laughs> I love it. Well, listen, we, we like to cut these episodes. I think it's a great place to end yeah. for part one. Everybody tune back, tune into part two. I've got a bunch more questions for Savannah. Thanks, everyone.